It's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. Merry Christmas. Happy, happy holidays. I hope that you take a moment this holiday to just celebrate yourself for everything that you've walked through this year, for all that you have been able to journey through. The breakthroughs, the insight, the way you just continue to strive to walk home to your truest self and the way you continue to put beauty in the world. I met a few fans over the weekend, one at the airport, one when I was taking my kids ice skating, another one later on at a at a theater event. And I'm just so touched to really just constantly be aware and the reinforcement that this community is just such an amazing group of souls. I feel like we're in each other's lives because we're cut from the same cloth. There's just this uh, goodness every time I meet one of you in person, every time I get an email or a DM, I'm just so struck by your kindness, your humility, your empathy, your courage. And I just want to say that I hope that you see that in yourself because I wish I could hold up a mirror and show you how unbelievable of a human being you are and how the world really needs you. You're like medicine because you want to do good because you want to do good. You want to continue to create a ripple effect in this world, and you are. So today, we're going to actually play some highlights from the best episodes, our favorites from this year. And it really is so hard to choose, but we wanted to do some wrap-up. So today and later on this week, you're going to hear some clips from some of my favorite moments from this year's podcast. So to begin, we're going to share a clip from someone who's so amazing, the one and only Mitch Grassi. I've been a Pentatonix fan since they started, but I've seen them live in concert four times. So when I ran into Mitch at an Abraham Hicks event, I had to go and say hello. He's so gracious and generous, and it was amazing to have him on the show. We've actually become friends, which really is just so special. He's magical. He's got such an amazing heart. So here's what he shared about his roots and how the seeds of Pentatonix were first planted. Take a listen. Well, I always loved music and I always was locked away in my room listening to Paula Abdul and Sade cassette tapes on my little Walkman. And it's just like all I did. I still do that to this day. I'm still very much an avid listener of music. And I think when I really noticed that what I had had an effect on people was when I did this, I guess it was a play, but I sang a song at the end. I sang America the Beautiful. It was a play about America. It was a patriotic play that we did at our community theater. And I just remember such a serious emotional response that I got from adults. And I was like, oh, I never really knew that people took it this seriously. I thought it was just something that, you know, was for me that I enjoyed. But I just remember my my dad specifically being like, you have something special that is affecting the people around me. And I need you to know that. It's so special. And I told you that, I mean, I saw Rent on Broadway. The first you week. love Rent. Yeah, I saw it the first week it opened with Adam Pascal and all those people. Wow. My parents did the right thing by always bringing me to see what really mattered in life. And so, yeah. and I'm telling you what you have bottled inside of you is like, a thousand of the most amazing things I've seen in one person. It's like, wow. I, I, I mean, it's just so beautiful and it's just a gift. And 
it's just incredible that you allow it to come through you. And I'm, I'm moved by it in ways that like, I just don't have words for. And it just is what it is. It's like, yeah, some people come in the world and they are Jim Henson. And it's just like, wow, what an honor. Wow. You're like that. And that's really cool. It's really damn special. So can you you. tell us, because I can't believe that you live your life now getting to do this. Like, and by the way, you're all Olympians. When I listen to the (laughs) level of talent and the five of you, I'm just like, how is this even possible? Like, oh, the, it is insane. It's like watching somebody land, make the landing in a gymna- in the hardest gymnastics performance every <laughs> note, every time. Like, that's how hard it is. And it, we don't have enough words. It's not impressive. It's beyond impressive. It's just beauty. It's just so good. It's just being in, in the zone. But you get to do this. And I want to talk about how crazy your life is that this is what you get paid to do. But you guys met. Three of you have been friends since you were what? eight? How long have you known Scott? Yeah, I've known Scott since I was nine. And then I met Kirsten when I was 10. So it's just so bizarre that here we are to this day, age 30, 31, still together, still working together, still, I mean, honestly, as close as we've ever been. And just, it's a miracle that we've been together, we've grown together, we've watched each other create each other's memories. And we've all achieved such a beautiful understanding of of life and what it means to have this type of life and to have these gifts and to be able to create joy in so many lives. I think it's still something that we're coming to terms with. And I think for me specifically, the challenge has been, well, I guess it boils down to self-confidence and self-love and being self-assured because all my life I was what is it that I'm getting so wrong that I'm so different than everybody else and I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong? What am I doing wrong that I'm not fitting in with everybody else? And so I was always playing this game of comparison. And I think just recently, I would say, maybe within the last year or two, I was like, oh, I'm I'm not supposed to be like everybody else. First of all, I'm supposed to enjoy my life. And this is something that you know, we met at an Abraham Hicks event and that's something that I've really, really learned from her and her teachings. Um, you know, we're, we're here to enjoy the ride. And I think what's so amazing about pentatonics and the band members is that we're all so different. We're so strange and we all have our little isms. And I think we're coming to love those and to love the fact that I can't sit still for more than two minutes or I can't focus on something for more than 30 seconds. And I don't know. I just, I think we're meant to enjoy it. We're meant to enjoy it all. I mean, it's so generous that you would be humble enough to like tell us what's really part of your own process. But of course you would. Like, that's why I love you so much because all I feel from you is like humility and talent together, which is so rare. I can, I can feel it. But for people who are listening to the show to hear that you also have that come up, it's almost hard to believe that you have that because those people in the world you know, Michael Jordan can't fit in because he stands out. How could he fit in? Like, it's like, right. you can't fit in when you're Picasso. You just can't. So it's hard to believe that you would have wanted to yeah. up until even recently. What does that look like? Who do you want to be like? Why would you want to fit in? What was the comparison to who, to what? Yeah, I think it's a lot of different things. I think growing up in Texas as a gay male, you know, Texas is... Nothing but love for them, but they are guilty of being, I would say, behind the times culturally. And I lived that firsthand. And right. 
you know, I think I ran into a lot of issues with my masculinity and what it really meant to be a man. And to me, I, I think being a man means something completely different than what it means to somebody, you know, growing up in Arlington, Texas. And that's totally fine. Like we're living different lives. But I think it was that. I think it was, you know, now that I'm in the gay community, you know, I think there's an underlying tendency to want to be homogenous. And I think it's because we all come from this place of trauma and wanting to be validated and loved. So that tendency is very real and I totally understand it. And I think it runs through me as well, you know, if I'm not super conscious of it. And I think also being a creative, being a musician, being an artist is so scary because it is such an individual process and you are constantly looking for guidance. You want somebody to give you any pointer at all. And for a long time, I was afraid to make music on my own because I was like, well, I don't know where to start, which basically means I'm afraid to start. I'm afraid to take that first step. So I was looked at these other musicians constantly and it would always, you know, end in failure. Um, So I think the most important lesson I've learned is that you can study and you can watch other people as, as much as you want. But in the end, it's experience that teaches Words don't teach, experience teaches, as Abraham Hicks would say. So this year, we had not just one, but two of the pentatonics on the show. The wonderful Scott Hoying was here, and he is just so kind and delightful. It was amazing to hear this beautiful story of how he learned to accept himself. Take a listen. I can't even imagine what it's like to grow up as a kid in Arlington, Texas, and have that experience. I don't know if you feel like sharing a little bit about what that's like, but I feel like those are important stories to tell. Like, yeah. What was that like for you? And did you feel like you had to kind of erase that part of your identity for a while until it felt safe enough for you to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I think that I didn't even realize it was tough at first because I didn't understand it and I wasn't educated about it. And we didn't really have social media when I was really young. So I didn't see a lot of queer people in media or have a community online, which I'm so like happy that more youth has that now. So I just felt like, I was different, but I didn't want to be. I was actually like really, really passionate and worked really hard to be like everyone else. And like, yeah, that wears on you. After that makes like, me want to cry. Yeah, I'm about to. I'm about to shed a tear or two. But like, uh, uh, you know, in 17 years of my life, you're hiding your truest self from everyone, even your family. And knowing that not one person knows the real you, not even your mom, is like, it hurts. But I will say on the positive side, I think it built empathy in me and like love because I want everyone to feel understood as I know the feeling of being misunderstood. And um, I think it made me a stronger person and a beautiful person. But it was, yeah, it's tough. It's just tough. And your formative years having to create a character for yourself it takes a lot of years to unlearn that. I'm so it's glad not- that you, I'm so glad that you shared that. I I can't even believe that you have the ability to still be present with sharing it because I'm sure you've shared it before, but it's like you don't disassociate from what you're feeling and you are so present. And that's really that ability heals people because the people listening to this, whether they know someone who's queer and going through that or whether they are, everybody knows something they hide about themselves because they want to belong. And whoever that affected, it only affects them that much deeper because when you shared that, it was like you were telling it for the first time. 
that's such an indication of your emotional intelligence. It's like, that's what makes you such a good songwriter. You, you are so available to feel what's there to feel. And that is the definition of empathy. That's so singular to you. That's so unusual that you could just do that. And it's so important. And that kills me that story, that story. Like I remember when I went to see Dear Evan Hansen mm-hmm. and I was hysterical. I, I was like, what just happened? And it's because everybody knows that feeling of waving through a window, which I know you guys covered too. Uh-huh. But like, I'm, and, I love that musical. And I'm people. sure you guys are BFFs because he's the best. Oh, yes. Ben Platt. Yeah, yeah, I can amazing. only imagine that when you guys get together, it's just like meteor showers. But that exactly. feeling, I think the reason that show was so beloved is because everyone knows that secret, that it's the same secret everybody has on some level, which is you don't really know me. Yeah. But it's even levels and levels and levels and levels of levels of more extreme when we all kind of walk around the elephant in the room, which is that it's not fully accepted. Yeah. I also feel like we all want to feel loved, but we all just like, we all have to protect ourselves. And it's just, I think a big thing I've learned in my life is there's so many people in this world, so many and people that will accept the real you. And so I'm just like, now I just feel like I'm just opened up completely and I just want to be my most authentic self. And as scary of a leap as that was, I was like, if I get a million unfollows on Instagram, I honestly would not mind because I just want to be myself. That's and like, right. and, but it's, it's amazing how the second you do that, the opposite of what your fear happens. Like you start to feel comfortable in yourself. You start to have more energy. You start to attract the right people. Pieces start to fall into place. And that's also, that's not me encouraging anyone to come out before they should. I know there's like a bunch of factors involved, but I'm just saying like the second I, was able to really like own who I was. It was just like a relief. All right, now I want to share a piece from the incredible Cheryl Strayed. She talks about how she found the perseverance to hike 1,100 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. This is so powerful. I don't think that I'm extraordinary. So when I decided in that moment that I had to do something to change my life and decided to go on the hike, I, I think that spark is inside of all of us. Yep. It's not like only special people get to say, Once. hey, you know what? I'm in this <laughs> rock bottom place and I have the strength and courage to save myself. I think we all do. And I think that that is about really listening deeply to yourself and trusting that inner voice within you. And that is also sort of an answer to the question you just asked. What happened to me mm-hmm. when I started to hike? There were two planes, right? There was the exterior one where I was like, okay, what have I done? It is really hot and really cold. And my pack is really heavy. And I don't know how to backpack. And I don't know how to use my cook stove. I put the wrong gas into it. And oh, goodness gracious, my feet hurt. It was all of that, the testing of the body against the world, which is a lot. And and I think an important part of a spiritual journey. And then inside of myself, with each of these tests that I either passed or failed, it didn't matter. I did them. I continued to walk through them. I continued to put one foot in front of the other, even when it hurt. And what I realized is, you know, I had this idea. I mean, certainly when I decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, I envisioned it as a spiritual quest, a spiritual journey. And I had this idea of what that would look like. And to me, it seemed a lot of emotional processing. It seemed a lot of kind of crying and 
contemplating and feeling big things. And I got out there and I was so in my body, Kathy. It was like just everything hurt. Everything was hard. I had to keep hiking. And pretty soon I realized that the body was my teacher. The body was teaching my spirit what it needed to know. And it needed to know that we can continue on even when it hurts, that we do have strength and courage, that when we get really quiet with ourselves, we almost always can find that there's a light within that will guide us forward. And those things accumulated day after day after day after day and mile after mile and breath after breath and step step after step. And it changed my life. Now, here's a clip from Greg Harden. It's going to definitely fire you up. He mentored some of the greatest athletes like Tom Brady and Michael Phelps. And this is what he said about how we can all be stars in our own lives. My husband and I went to this speech with Wayne Gretzky and he, and he showed that Tom wasn't the first pick in the draft. He wasn't the second pick. He wasn't the third pick. That this kid built himself despite. So I don't know if you want to touch on that, but I think that this is something that we don't see because we look on social media. We see the highlight reels of things. We don't see the before. We don't understand what's going on. So we just assume that everybody else has something we don't. And therefore, why even try? Because we don't understand what goes into building ourselves into our potential. Tom Brady allowed me to convince him to not care about what everybody else thought. The coaches don't like me, Tom. I don't care what your coaches think. All I care about is what you think. Wow, that's so hard. Tom, I don't care that they don't see you. Do you see you? I don't care that they're only giving you three reps. Those three reps have to be the most amazing reps anyone could possibly see consistently. And they're going to give you five. And those five, brah, four out of five got to be spectacular until somebody say, well, we give him 10. And that's what's going to happen to you in your life over and over. All you've got to do is train yourself to give a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time at everything you do, compete at everything, including self-mastery. Learn to master your thoughts. Learn to master and commit to your dreams. Learn to not just dream big, but to believe big in order to become big. So it's so important that people allow themselves the freedom of believing in themselves. Not that they're going to be a mega star, but that they're going to be a star at everything they do. Being a parent, being a friend being a spouse, being a significant other. I don't care what it is. Okay, so let's be real honest. Wow, that sounds exciting. But can anyone give 100% 100% of the time? No. So what is the lesson here? Default mode. What? My default mode is to try to give 100% 100% of the time. And before then, if I was off, I was like giving 30%. <laughs> well, I was all on a good day. I might get 60%. But if my default mode, the way I see myself, if my mindset, if my attitude is to give my best every chance I get, my worst day is going to be better than the average person's best day. 
That's a game changer. I know I'm not going to be perfect. The pursuit of perfection is fun to be. So thank you, perfect. That's not going to work. But I'm not praying to you tonight. This next piece is from Dr. James Doty, who wrote one of my favorite books, Into the Magic Shop. Such an honor to have him on the podcast. And I love the story of the day he stumbled into the magic shop and met the teacher who would change his life. I grew up in poverty. Essentially, my entire childhood, my family was on public assistance. My father was an alcoholic. He was a binge drinker. And my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and was partially paralyzed. She also had a seizure disorder, was chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times. I had an older stepsister and a brother who was about a year and a half older. We were evicted multiple times. And of course, as you can imagine, this is not the ideal setting for one to succeed in life. What ultimately happened to me in this environment was that I was filled with hopelessness and despair, which of course is a horrible thing. If you don't have mentors, if you don't have people who care for you, if you don't have resources, if you're poor, the likelihood of having access to things that make you a success are very limited. Oftentimes, when it was very difficult, let's say if my father came home drunk or my mother was having some issues or they were in an argument, I would get on my bicycle and ride as far and as fast away as I could. And on one of those journeys, I landed at a strip mall and there was a magic shop there. And I had had an interest in magic. So I walked in and there was a woman sitting there who had her eyeglasses sort of at the tip of her nose and she had a chain around the glasses and she was reading a very thick paperback and she looked up and greeted me and I started asking her some questions about magic. And she informed me that this was her son's store, that she was simply minding the store while he ran an errand and that she knew nothing about sort of the magic in the store. But the interesting thing about her was that she had a radiant smile, one of those smiles that embraces you and makes you feel okay. And that's how I felt talking to her. I felt like for whatever reason that I could trust her, I didn't have to be ashamed. So we began a conversation and she actually ended up asking me some fairly penetrating questions or deep questions that normally I would not respond to about my background, where I live, etc. And I was honest with her. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, she said to me, you know, I really like you. I'm here for another six weeks. If you'd like, I think I can help you and teach you something. And so what happened is for the next six weeks, I showed up at the magic shop and she took me into this back room which, you know, nowadays, thinking of a 12-year-old child going in a back room with a woman is a little strange. But that being said, for about an hour and a half or two every day for the next six weeks, we spent that time together. And she taught me many, many things. One of the first things she taught me or pointed out to me was the fact that I was very tense. And what I did not appreciate is that when you grow up in a chaotic environment, like I grew up in, you never know what's going to happen next. And as a result, you're always in stress mode. Your sympathetic nervous system has kicked in. You're very vigilant. You cannot relax. 
And she taught me a relaxation technique. And of course, this is one of the first techniques associated with mindfulness. She had me sit up and with intention, go from the tip of my toes to the top of my head, relaxing my body. Now, you have to, again, understand I was 12 years old. And on some level, I thought this lady was nuts. (laughs) But I went ahead and did it. And after a few weeks, I actually was able to relax. And after a few weeks, I was actually able to relax and be present. I didn't always feel like something was going to happen. And it was quite extraordinary. Just the very nature of being able to do that was quite powerful. The next thing she taught me was actually a recognition that I was hypercritical of myself. I had told myself, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't deserve this. And when you do that, when you're so hypercritical to yourself, one, it limits your agency, and two, it skews your view of the world. Because when you're hypercritical of yourself, of course, you're hypercritical of everyone else. And it is not a attribute that's so good. It limits you. So what I tell people is that when you're hypercritical to yourself, it's like laying down brick by brick to build a prison for yourself. Mm. And it's a prison that not only is small, but it starts getting dark. And when you are in that prison, you start to believe that you don't have any agency. But what we forget is that within ourselves is an incredible, incredible amount of strength and capacity to do oftentimes what many people would consider impossible. But you have to release yourself from that self-created prison. And so once she made me recognize that, she gave me the tools, if you will, to be self-affirmative, to make positive statements to myself, to understand that I deserve to be loved, that I am worthy. And that makes a huge, huge difference. And once she did that, it changed how I saw the world. Because I used to have a lot of anger about the world and how I was treated. People forget that when you carry these deep emotions, this anger, this hostility, it radiates outside of yourself. And then people respond to that. So then the next step was that once you have been released from your self-created present, you actually have the capacity to manifest your intention. And that was the next thing she taught me. And she taught me that by using various techniques that now are commonly talked about, as an example, especially with athletes, about visualization and writing things down and things like this, uh, she taught me this technique. And in fact, she had me write 10 things down that I wanted. And then she had me not only repeatedly write them down, but to silently read them, then read them aloud, and then visualize them actually manifesting. And that technique of manifesting has really been so powerful in my own life. And so all from this interaction with this woman, she truly changed the trajectory of my life. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Shafali, who's a powerhouse in everything she does. She said this incredibly eye-opening statement. I found it so fascinating. Take a listen. I'm curious of all the things because your your capacity for understanding is so great. 
why did you choose this as such a big lane in your life to work with moms and parents to be conscious? Why is this one of the pieces that you decided to say, I'm putting this in the world? Because you could have gone in a zillion directions. And what do you really want them to get? Well, precisely because you you realized what you did. And I realized this in my years of clinical work and in my own motherhood, how the core for the evolution of the planet is the consciousness of the mother. And I'm not just putting it on the mother figure. It is the healing for the planet. So when I was doing my work and I was thinking I should write this kind of book and I should do this kind of work and I should... When I deconstructed it down and I whittled it to what can I focus on that would have literally the key in a seismic intergalactic way. And it sounds like I'm so pompous, like, well, I was going to find the key. No, it doesn't. I was just trying to break it down for myself. Like, what is the key problem? If I had to break it down to one thing that I could say, let's change this and it will have a ripple effect of exponential proportions, it was this. And the reason it was this was more so because no one was talking about it, because the parent was exempt from examining their ego. The false identification of a parent with their parent identity, you were saying Kathy Heller identity, with the and the mother identity, that was the core evil in the world. When I say evil, meaning unconsciousness in the world. And that ego was not being talked about at all. And it was that that I went for because I saw it in my own mothering. I was brave enough to see my own ego. And that was the greatest courage I ever had in my life. And that is what I want to give to the world. Because when you see your own ego, your own false identity as a mother and how because of that false identity, you are creating this child to be in your own making, in your own fantasy, and you are ruining your child's chance at their own destiny. That is the core, quote unquote, evil of the world. Because you abduct your child from their essence, the child grows up to abduct others from their essence. And that's why we abducted the earth from its essence and abducted the animals from their essence. We fucked up the whole world because of that one thing that no one wants to talk about, which is the false identity of the parent, a.k.a. their ego. So once I got that, I was like, that's what I want to dedicate my life to. That's it. I will die okay if I can answer that problem, if I can solve that problem. Here's a clip from the wonderful Dr. Bob Waldinger, who's the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is a decades-long study about what it means to have a good life. He wrote a book earlier this year called The Good Life, and this is what they discovered about the essential key to more fulfillment and happiness. What surprised us in studying these lives, the same people over decades, was not that taking care of your physical health was good for you. We know it's good for you. What surprised us was that taking care of your relationship health is really good for you. Not just keeps you happier, but it actually keeps your body healthier, helps you stay disability-free longer as you get older, uh, helps you live longer. I mean, we, we didn't believe it at first. That's so profound. Really, it is a shock. You don't think that that would actually have anything to do with having your physical well-being intact. It's amazing that that's true. 
But it makes so much sense when you say it, like, of course, because there's more at rest inside of you. There's not as much cortisol pumping through your body because you're not being triggered all the time, right? The same well, way. and that's exactly it, what you just said. Like, when, you know, because as researchers, we study, well, how would this work? How could relationships possibly get into your body and shape your, your health? And it is about stress. And it is about relief from stress. What we see is that good relationships are emotion regulators. They help us return to a kind of equilibrium that we're meant to return to after we're challenged, after we're stressed. That's beautiful. But if you don't have anybody at home or anybody you can call who can do that for you, who can be a good listener when you're stressed, who can give you sound advice, when you have that person, you can literally feel your body calm down when you can tell someone about a stressful experience. If you don't have that person, then what we think happens is you stay in this kind of chronic fight or flight. Oh. You mm. stay revved up and we're not, our bodies are not meant to do that. The next piece is from another really wise and wonderful teacher, Dr. Rick Hansen. He shared with me this tale that's really interesting about what the Tibetan Buddhists say about the hungry ghosts. It's one of my favorite metaphors that I constantly share because it's so powerful. You may know the metaphor of the hell realm in Tibetan Buddhism of the hungry ghosts. These no, are, okay, this is, this is LA. This is Western consumer culture, basically. And it's a hell realm with these beings with godlike powers and vast appetites represented by enormous bellies, but their capacity to satisfy their appetites are through the pinhole of a mouth. Uh, ding, ding, ding. That's it. Most people uh, in the West were, who are chasing experiences of one kind or another, they don't take in the good along the way. They don't internalize it. They don't internalize it. I can feel that. I get it. it. It's a hell realm, or at least purgatory. It's not good, right? And it drives consume, the consumerism that's burning our planet up and trashing our resources and just trashing the resources, the endowment of the planet that we should steward for generations to come, right? So one, take in the good along the way. Slow it down. Let it land when you actually accomplish something. Feel it for two, three, four, five seconds in a row, maybe longer if you like, before you race on to the next thing. So instead of feeling like you're always running on empty and you're hungry and you need the next thing, instead, feed yourself. Feed yourself. Let it land. And then if you think about the Buddhist teaching, since you've gone there, the uh, second noble truth of translated routinely is craving. Craving is a drive state based on something missing or something wrong. But instead... If you feel, if you're aware of the fullness and the balance in the present, you don't have to be driven by craving. Instead, you can be motivated by what the Buddha laid out as healthy desire, technically a different word, like wanting children to be fed, wanting a podcast to flourish, wanting to get a, I like your sweater. Like that's a really cool sweater. (laughs) Wanting a cool sweater. You know, it's okay. In other words, they're wholesome desires. And as we slow down to, Taking the good, we build up strengths inside that make us even more effective at fulfilling our dreams. So for me, the sweet spot, I call it aspiration without attachment. In other words, where you're going for it full on, but you find a way to be peaceful with the results no matter what. And without getting hijacked by an invasive sense of stressful drivenness along the way. That's the sweet spot. 
Someone else who loves exploring spirituality as much as I do is Rain Wilson, who was so generous and came back on the podcast to talk about his book, Soul Boom. I love what he said about how we can each start a spiritual revolution in our own worlds. So speaking about more in this in this book, this is so much of it, but then you sort of, you posit this beautiful idea that we could have a spiritual revolution. What does that look like to you? If you could be king for the day and design the world, what would a spiritual revolution look like in this world? That's my favorite question of all time. And I love, <laughs> I love answering that question. Thank you very much. This is the whole reason why I wrote the book. I feel like society, the way it's currently framed, the way it's currently built, the way the systems currently work is based on the very worst of our human impulses. You think about don't tread on me and live free or die. Our foundation of our country is based on kind of the worst impulses of capitalism of greed, one-upsmanship, materialism. We talked about accruing more stuff, that happiness will be given to us. The more stuff we accrue, that one-upsmanship, dog-eat-dog, stabbing each other in the back, survival of the fittest, this whole way of, of being, it's part of our DNA as humans, no question. All you have to do is go visit the La Brea Tar Pits and you're like, oh, look, some of the earliest inhabitants of North America, we're like bashing each other in the skull with clubs, you know, like it's part of our DNA. Yes. But we also have another story to tell humanity. We're cooperative. We're consultative. We create community. We can love each other. We can support each other. We can help each other move forward. And humanity has also done that over the eons, but we don't look at that aspect of humanity. So I talk a lot about the mental health crisis that we're currently going through, especially with young people. It's so devastating, the anxiety, depression, loneliness, suicidal ideation, and actual suicide from young folks is just terrible. And there's so many pandemics going on in the world. There's, you know, climate change, racism, and income inequality. The list goes on and on. And there's so many broken systems. So I talk about this the subtitle of the book, Soul Boom, is Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. And so I write a lot about this, and then I want to leave us with hope, right? And we can make the world a better place, and we should make the world a better place. And the number one thing that we need to stop is pessimism. And I say, what are the seven pillars for a spiritual revolution? And number one is foster joy and squash cynicism. That's something that you do, you've done on the show, you've done on this episode, but it's so important. It sounds obvious and kind of like, oh, that's kindergarten or it's Sunday school. No, it is, it's transformative. We can spread joy and we can squash that cynicism in ourselves. If we are pessimistic and cynical, things go on just the way that they've gone on for the last several decades. And in fact, they get worse and worse. The forces of injustice want us to be cynical. They want us to be pessimistic. If we don't bring hope and feel hope and access hope, we can never make change. So I remember I had this acting teacher, this very famous director named Andre Gregory. He was the focus of the movie, My Dinner with Andre, which is a classic. You know, the whole movie is a conversation at dinner between two people. And he would have tea with his students sometimes and I had tea with him and 
he's like, how are you feeling? And I, and I said, well, you know, I'm feeling kind of pessimistic. I'm feeling kind of down on the gills. I feel like, you know, I don't know if change is possible and I'm feeling kind of depressed about it. And Kathy, he grabbed my arm hard. He was in his seventies at the time. I think he's in his nineties now. Grabbed my arm hard. He looked in my eyes and he was like, stop it. Don't let yourself do it. Don't feel cynical. If you're pessimistic and cynical, they win. You want them to win? You have to keep hope alive. You have to stay positive. It's your charge. I mean, he really was hurting my arm. I was like, ow. And he sent me out the door with that charge. And I saw things differently after that point. Now, there's a lot more specifics we could get into, but that's a good starting point. Oh, revolution. This year, we were so happy because Sophia Amorosa came on the show. Her entrepreneurial journey has been so wild and it was really fascinating to hear her reflect on it. And she's hitting a point where she's really ready to finally slow down and enjoy her life. I wasn't a CEO. I wasn't a startup founder. I wasn't a founder. I was an eBay seller. I was selling some stuff on eBay. I had to give it a name, right? You have to make an account. So I called it Nasty Gal Vintage and took all the photos, wrote all the descriptions as any eBay seller does, not that special small bootstrap business. And it became a business because I was so curious and just started putting one foot in front of the other. And eBay had given me this incredible framework to be like, okay, I need to and I put a price in and I weigh it and I ship it. Had I had to figure that all out by myself, I don't think I would have started selling online. And now, right, like 15 or how many years later after I started Nasty Gal, there's Shopify and Squarespace and Square and all of these amazing platforms to start businesses with. Etsy didn't exist. And so did eBay for about a year and a half. The first year sold $75,000 worth of vintage. Second year, 250K. And around then is when I, halfway through that year, I left and launched my website. Left eBay, nastygalvintage.com. Year for that was 1.1 million. And at this point, I'm not just selling vintage. I'm going to trade shows and I'm curating brands based on what my audience gave me indications that they like loved. So I knew I was able to kind of test my audience with one-off pieces and then understand her and what it was that she wanted to wear. So it was 1.1 and six and a half million. And by 2011, we were doing 12 million in revenue with no debt, no investors, you know, no loans, no friends and family, like startup money. I literally just like flipped clothes and then investors came in. And they put 50 million, $60 million into the business. And that's kind of where the story that everyone else is, you know, that's when I kind of got thrust into the spotlight as this poster child of entrepreneurship. I mean, this is a long story. Should I continue? It's so good. Keep going. Okay. It's like exhausting to say out loud. And I'm like, what? All that happened? Like, I'm tired. (laughs) I'm tired after talking about this. And I'm triggered. No. So they injected $60 million into the business. We said, okay, these were all like people with more experience. I hired like chief operating officer and had like really experienced investors, some of the best in Silicon Valley. And we were like, great. So we're growing really fast. We're going to do 28 million this next year. By the time they invested, that was the expectation. And then the year after that, we're just going to do a hundred million. And so we took that $60 million in venture capital and hired a hundred people in a year and moved into more warehouse space anticipate because I had outgrown every office and warehouse I had been in. They were like 
so fast up until that point. So we're like, okay, let's have to sign a longer lease now. Let's get a big space, big warehouse in Kentucky and hire a guy from Zappos to run fulfillment and all this stuff. And we eventually hit a hundred million in revenue, but it took a couple of years and it cost us a lot of money to get there. And that's a huge accomplishment, but I didn't understand that a company could lose money and still operate. You know, at that point, I had not really understood finance. I didn't know how to read a profit and loss statement or a balance sheet. I didn't really understand cash flow because there was always cash because the company needed cash because that's what companies need to operate. And by the time things got really complex, I didn't even have like a foundational knowledge because I was running on intuition and wit and common sense and a financial statement was so complex by the time we got that big, that understanding how to manage the business like that became really challenging. During that time, when we were doing around $100 million in revenue, I wrote a book called Girl Loss. I did not anticipate it to become what it did. It spent 18 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It sold half a million copies. So much. A lot. Netflix made a series out of it called Girl Boss, and there's someone playing a girl named Sophia, <laughs> starting a company called Nasty Gal. Charlize Theron produced it. That was a trip. And in 2016, I left Nasty Gal. It fell apart for a lot of reasons. There's no single kind of like what happened. It doesn't happen overnight that a company falls apart. We were overvalued. So they had t- said in 2012, when we were doing on our way to 28 million in revenue that we were mm. worth $350 million. Mm. So for anyone else to come in and invest after that, the expectation from our investors was that those people were going to pay more money and not yeah. $400 million, but a billion, right? They want to multiply their money. They don't want like incremental markups. Yep. So that was one of the challenges, but I was a really young, naive founder who had never, literally never worked in an office before, had no model for what leadership looked like, was trying to learn on the fly as I was building this rocket ship. And I can learn really quickly, but the learning curve for this was like steeper than my ability to learn and adapt. Totally. And that happens in our lives. And now I want to share something I said about a topic that has really come into my focus this year. It's all about manifesting abundance. I think this was really a helpful reminder as we head into the new year. You don't need to go hustle to make money. That's what men think they need to do, not women. A woman just needs to be in alignment. You step into alignment, you will be a magnet for all abundance because you will be in your wholeness. And what did I teach you? The radio decides what music it hears. You have been thinking that you have no say in it. You're not in control. The world is in control of what you get. That's you tapped out of your power. When you're tapped into your power and you turn on that radio inside of you, you broadcast a frequency of receptivity. You are receptive. You are allowing. In fact, you no longer have to say ever again, I'm trying to be wealthy. I'm trying to be a boss. I'm trying to run. You have to have a new word. I'm allowing myself to be wealthy. Done. I'm allowing myself to build an empire. Done. Because guess what? It's already here. All the money is already made. All the opportunities are already there. You are just holding yourself apart from them because you've been conditioned to think small because you're conditioned to believe that you being powerful is a threat to humanity. And that has to stop. I'm going to tell you something right now that might change your life. And here it is. 
You can have everything you want as long as you're willing to give up the belief that you can't have it. You can have anything you want, but you've got to be willing to let go of the belief that you can't have it. Are you with me? Everything is energy, my friends. Everything is consciousness. And when you really look at it, there are only two choices. You are either receptive and you are allowing or you're in resistance. And if you have a desire and you allow yourself to have it, you'll have it. But if you have a desire and you have a ton of resistance towards it, you will not have it. So as we're wrapping up, I have to share this piece from the extraordinary Mignon Francois. She has one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. And when you listen to what she's been through, you will truly believe that anything is possible. I was a stay-at-home mom who was drowning in debt and brokenness. We were losing everything that we had, including the house that our business is now in right now today. When my husband asked me for a divorce after 21 years of marriage, I don't know what I'm going to do because my life has been taking care of your children while you bring home whatever is left for me to manage. And there are many days that we don't have light. Mm. And there are many days that we don't have water because we couldn't afford it. And this is a recession. This is 2008. The Mm -hmm. economy is turning down. And we are in the business of building the atmosphere up. So my ex-husband was a contractor working, building houses and things. And so we're in the business that's required an up economy and the economy is going down. We don't have a savings. We don't have any money. We don't have any credit. And I hear this man on the radio say you can get out of debt by having a bake sale or a garage sale. Problem is I can't have a garage sale because I moved to Nashville selling everything that I had to get here. And then when we got to Nashville, the thing that we came to Nashville for fell through as soon as we got here. So we needed those tools that we sold to get here. Now, what are we supposed to do? When we find this house, we start living here to raise our family here, but we start becoming known in the neighborhood because we have a whole bunch of kids. And the neighborhood loves our kids and they don't know that We've been living in this house a lot of times without electricity and my neighbor knocks on the door. I have been practicing this thing that Dave Ramsey was saying that you could do, have a bake sale to get out of debt. I had called my grandmother on the phone, who was my favorite baker. And she said, why are you trying to do this in the kitchen? You don't even like to be in there. And I said, because of the man on the radio. And so she says, okay, open up your hand, get this much flour get this much salt. Like she begins to shout out ingredients and all of a sudden, 17 years before what didn't make sense in college when I was studying to be a doctor, all of a sudden made sense in my kitchen and what I couldn't apply to the human body, I can now totally see it making sense in the kitchen. And so I start making these scientific reactions that I call cupcake. <laughs> I started going out into my neighborhood and sharing them with people to see if they thought it was good. And as they would take down one house, they would put up 15. And so I would see real estate agents coming. I would say, my family says, so good, will you taste it? And they'd offer me money on the street. And I realized I had something that could save me. And my neighbor, when she knocked on the door, she asked me to make cupcakes for all of her clients for the season. This was going to be 600 cupcakes. 
but I had been sitting in the back of my house with no electricity in the dark. And I was doing this Dave Ramsey baby step plan, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And when you're in a situation like I was in, you can't even afford to put your money in the bank because a one cent mishap, it's so unfair. A one penny mishap will send you into an overdraft that now costs you $35, which makes you short for the next thing, which gives you another bank draft, which leaves you shorter for the next thing. And it's just a domino effect that you'll never catch up with. So I'm in the back of the house putting money into envelopes, trying to make any ends meet. When she asked for this and I had just realized I only had $5 left and I hadn't saved anything for the kids to eat for the week. She sees the perplexity on my face and says, okay, listen, when you make some, I'll pay you some. And so I'm like, okay, so I give you cupcakes, you give me money. Every time she says yes. And so I say, okay, and I close the door and I immediately have this come to Jesus moment talk with God. God, why would you give me this opportunity to make cupcakes right now when I have no electricity, I have no money to take it? And God said, but I feed birds and they don't toil or store up in barns. How much more will I give you who looks like me? And for the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, Solomon and all of his splendor wasn't even clothed like one of them. And I heard that in my spirit and I said, okay, God. And I walked to the Kroger just a couple blocks down the street. And I bought everything that I could buy with that $5 and I turned it into 60 that day. So she did like she said that she would. And, you know, sometimes it requires that we trust people where we can't trace them. And I turned $60 into 600 by the end of the week. And it's been that same money that I've been flipping for the last 17 years. I built this business with no debt. I built it with no experience in the business. I built it with no knowledge of the product. And I built it losing the house that the bakery exists in right now today. I own the house. And I've been able to set up a trust fund for my grandchildren to be able to have it, you know, upon my transition from here to there. And I'm so proud of what we've been able to do as a family, me and my children, when we were supposed to drown, when we were supposed to be left behind, when we were supposed to be continuing to live and lack and to continue to want. God said, no. Thank you for joining this end of the year celebration. I think we've all grown so much. We've learned so much in the last 12 months. And I'm so blessed to be on this journey with you. We're going to be featuring more top moments from the year on Thursday's episode. So make sure that you follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening so you don't miss out. And if there's something you've enjoyed about this show, please let us know by leaving a review. That would be an amazing holiday gift. It means so much to us when you leave a review. And if there's someone in your life who you think would find the podcast valuable, please share the link with them. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song. Talk to you soon. Filled with carols, we deck the halls in every language you can hear.
Light it up.